You got a Bible? John chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, if you'd raise your hand here or in the conference center, the ushers are going to find you. If you just slip up your hand and keep it there for a little while, they'll get you a Bible from us. If you get one of these Bibles that we're handing you, I think it's page 587, something like that, John 17. Keep your hands up high here. Again, page 587, if you're getting one of these Bibles that we have for you, John chapter 17. I've already told you kind of a a quick snapshot of the teaching schedule for the beginning of our year, but let me just tell you what we're doing with this series. Uh, It's a mini-series on its own, and we've made it extra mini um, for a reason. It was intended to be a three-week study on John 17, but we're going to take a break next week to celebrate Tom Schrader. 21 years of preaching faithfully here in this pulpit, and... uh, and influences, I met some, I told this to Neil this morning, I was standing out in front uh, of the, actually I was walking in and a gentleman pulled up in a car bringing his year-end donation in and uh, he started talking about how he met Christ and, and how that goes way back to Tom working in Caldwell Baker a long, long time ago. And so there are gobs of stories about ministry done. Uh, I've experienced them in 16 years being here. And uh, so we're going to take next week, Neil and myself and Tyler Johnson will will teach now. Trust me, there'll be little mini messages, so you're not going to be here all day. And we'll put together just kind of lessons that we've all learned uh, that we don't want to forget. And uh, we'll celebrate him. I actually asked Tom to pick all the music for for Sunday, which he was excited to do. I told him he could pick his outfit, which I thought that was fair. Um, Flip-flops, probably. Shorts, if it wasn't too cold. Um, Anyway, so I'd love for you to join us next week. And uh, churches don't get these opportunities very often. It's not very often that someone who founds a church in the last 20-some years, two decades plus, who, who leaves and leaves it well, and, uh, and we want to thank God for him and, and remind ourselves of things we've learned, right? So I'd love for you to be here and be excited about it and remind your friends, if you didn't make it today, hey, you should show up next Sunday. That'd be great. The week after, we'll finish John 17, so it's a real mini-series, two, two weeks. So we've got a lot of work to do week three. This week, we got five verses um, this passage of scripture, John 17, is called the High Priestly Prayer. Uh, it is Jesus praying for his church, and we're just about, to, after this series, to get in the Building a Stronger Church series, the, uh, the essential elements that you've already been presented with. And probably more than anything, to me, uh, the reason why we decided to uh, teach John 17 is because we thought it would be a great way to fertilize a discussion uh, of, like, what does God want to do in our church? Specifically, the essential elements with what Jesus prayed for the church, right? So if we're thinking big things like, God, specifically, you've told us to do this here in this season for this time, maybe we spend a little bit of time looking at what Jesus thought about us and what he prayed for us. So uh, that's what we're going to do today. A couple of interesting uh, things about this chapter. It's the longest recorded prayer in all of Scripture, Um, Some have called it the most remarkable portion of the most remarkable book in all of human history. Some have called it the holy holies of sacred scripture. It's serious stuff, Jesus praying. Um, and so just picture this. This is, this is the scenario in which it's being spoken and then, and then written to us. Jesus is praying 
Um, he's doing it as savior of the world in the very act of his saving, right? He's hours away from suffering, and this is what comes out of him. So we ought to pay attention to his thoughts with God, for God, of God, when he's getting ready to suffer and provide redemption for, for us. So it's a, big, it's a big, big deal. He praises someone, uh, tons of authority and knowledge. He praises someone who has the secret eternal will of God in mind. And there's a reason for that, because he was there. For the foundations of the world, Jesus, the, the Son, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the, the perfect relationship of the Trinity before the foundations of the world, before people, before the earth, he, in his sovereign will and plan, formed all this. And so he's praying with that knowledge in mind to the Father of the intentions they had before all of this began. So it's a big deal. A, a little context for John 17. Um, it comes after Jesus' greatest teaching. Some would say that every rabbi at the end of his life would speak his most important, his most important lessons. And so here we have Jesus uh, on the end of the, the upper room discourse, if you know what I'm talking about. Chapter 13 through 16 is these wonderful teachings that would take us forever to go through. He's just finished that, kind of like a run-on sentence, and then he prays. So we have, we have him talking about servant leadership. Remember, he demonstrates it by watching the disciples feet. And he said, this is how you lead. You lead by obscurity. You lead by humility. He teaches wonderful lessons about loving your brothers and loving people. And, and he kind of pushes against counterculture because in that day, the Jews thought, well, love those who love you, hate those who hate you. And Jesus translates all of that to, no, no, this is, this is God kind of love. This is benevolence and kindness and grace to all types of people. Um, in this uh, upper room discourse, he, this is where we get, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Some serious declarations there. Um, he also declared that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am deity. I am God. Pretty unbelievable stuff. He promises the Holy Spirit. He teaches about the connection between the branches and the vine, and he warns us of, up, of upcoming persecution for our relationship with Christ, the suffering that would come. So that's the, that's, the, uh, that's the environment with which this prayer is, is prayed. The setting of it is somewhere between, we don't know really precisely, somewhere between the upper room where he's teaching all these things and Gethsemane. So if you get the timeline, Jesus is walking to his greatest suffering. And in that moment, he prays this prayer. The, the chapter breaks down real simply, if you're an outliner, three particular parts. Now, we're, we're going to do it in two because of the two-week uh, limitation. The, the first one is the first five verses. Jesus prays for his own glory, for himself, in 1 through 5. 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples, the apostles, and then the rest of the chapter, he prays for us, the church. Now, we're going to package the disciples, apostles, and us together because they're fundamentally the same. We're all disciples of Christ, and he's, he's, the things that he says are universally true, so we're going to teach that in that third week we get together. Um, so so that's the breakdown. So let's, uh, let's read these first five verses, and uh, let's get into it. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Um, 
I don't know if you notice the context of this prayer. Uh, like I said, upper room discourse, we don't have any particular comments about transition. It just says he raises his hands to heaven and begins to pray. He prays out loud in front of his disciples intentionally to communicate. He's praying, yes, but he's communicating as well. And that's why it's very intentional. That's why I'm kind of calling this this section of scripture truths that Jesus wanted the church to be sure of because they're absolute certainties. Jesus is reflecting on what the will of God in eternity past was, and he said, this is what we planned, right, God? This is what we wanted, Father, right? This is what I'm coming to do, and he's saying out loud in front of all the disciples, so you just got to keep that in your mind. So these five truths that Jesus wanted the church to be sure of, here's here's the first one. The cross puts God's glory on display. The cross puts God's glory on display. Let me read verse one again, and we'll just pick it apart. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Just a couple observations here, the posture. Uh, Yes, it's physical, but it's way more than physical. The posture is a heart posture. There is something that Jesus the son is declaring by his looking to heaven it means he's not looking to himself. You know, it's totally counter to our own culture. I mean, we're told all the time, you know, pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps. Look inside. Find your strength, right? Crazy stuff. Jesus, in his greatest crisis, his most painful moment, looks up, doesn't he? He demonstrates a recognition of God's sovereignty and self-sufficiency for him and for the moment that he's about to go through. There is something more than just physical posture. There's an eternal posture, something we could probably stop and talk about regarding prayer, but we'll do that another time. The other thing I want you to notice is the the use of the word father. Um, This is unheard of in Jewish culture. It was considered irreverent. In fact, Neil told me this morning that the Jews wouldn't even spell God. They'd leave out the O for respect. So for Jesus, now we read over that and go, Father, of course, that's, that's who he is. But for those people listening, he says something so informal and irreverent, calling him Father, that it was scandalous, even the prayer, even the beginning of the prayer. But it's worth stopping and noting here. Um, and just a side note, you want motivation for prayer? If you want motivation for prayer, see him as Father. If he's a distant God busy doing bigger things than you, then you wouldn't pray. But if, if you understand that he's a father, that he cares like a father, the word is daddy, if he knows like a father knows, if he can do something about your story or your issues like any father could, then you would be on your knees praying, right? And so Jesus demonstrates in his humanity, although God, he prays, I know who you are, and I know you know me, intimately know me, and this story and my burden, and I'm coming to you, dad. It's a pretty tender moment, even though to those listening, it was pretty radical, but it speaks volumes about intimacy. So he says this, the hour has come. What hour? The hour of his greatest suffering. The hour of his lowest point and greatest pain. The hour of betrayal the hour of false accusations, the hour of a ruined reputation, the hour of being beaten, the hour of being scourged so much so that the flesh is hanging off his body, the hour of being, having sin placed on him, having the rejection of the Father, that hour, 
Jesus is praying, this is coming. Here we are. This is the whole plan from eternity past for redemption. It's now. And so he prays this prayer, glorify the son that the son may glorify you. Amazing truth here. And that's why I've entitled this little section that, that Jesus' greatest pain puts God's greatness on display. So, you know, if you get to know people, you know, I, I found a little funny website this week, you know, uh, owners and their dogs. Have you ever seen these where they look alike? So if you want to look at a pet and go, oh, that's who they are. I, I don't know if that works. Or the old adage, you are what you eat. If that's true, I'm in trouble. Um, or you, like if you came into my garage, I had a guy stop by the other day. He was p- replacing the windshield on my, on my car, and he walked in the garage, and he made all sorts of assessments of me, of me. And he was accurate because he looked around and said, well, this is who you are. This is kind of a much bigger version of putting God on display. Nothing in all creation would speak more clearly about the character of God than the cross of Jesus. Let me prove my point. Um, it speaks volumes about his commitment. So, so let me ask you, how far would God go to redeem you? All the way to death, right? He, he held nothing back. He left heaven and took on flesh. His commitment level is clearly depicted and the fact that he came. His love and mercy are on display at the cross. What else would compel a holy God to get involved with us? Something about his nature could only be spoken of in that horrible, horrific, agonizing wrath, right? Somehow, God, you love us, the unlovable, the perpetually broken and wandering. You love us like that, and you're doing that work because of mercy to redeem us? What else would tell that story? God's justice is on display at the cross, right? We make mistakes, and I think some of them are natural, but they're wrong. We try our best to understand God, and sometimes we treat him like he's more like us. Like the way we treat sin and offense, either in our own life or others' lives. And many of them, we just kind of go, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to deal with it. Never mind. God doesn't have that for sin because he's just. And because he's just, he has to deal with it. Otherwise, he's no longer God. Do you understand? He's not a promise-keeping God. He's not a take-a-sin-serious God. He's not a wrathful God for sin, and he's not merciful. He's just negligent like all of us are. He's more like me. And so the cross says, God, you're just, and nothing ever will get past you. Nothing. And you take sin so seriously. It puts his holiness on display. That, we talk about this all the time, this insurmountable, unbridgeable gap between God's holy perfection and my perpetual struggles. The cross says, I can bridge that gap. I have bridged that gap. It speaks volumes about God's purity. He would never compromise. And it speaks volumes about his trustworthiness because he made all these promises, all these prophecies about what he came to do and what he offered to us. And he, and he kept his promise. Do you see my point? When Jesus is getting ready for his worst moment, he's praying, okay, God, we planned this. Now glorify yourself. How? Through this horrible cross crucifixion death. 
Because more is spoken of God in that than anything else that God could say. If God was simply love, you wouldn't know that he was a holy God. If God was holy you wouldn't, and simply holy, you wouldn't know that he was a loving God. You wouldn't know that he was a forgiving God or a compassionate God or a merciful God or a God willing to go all the way for us. You wouldn't know that. The cross speaks it all. Everything that God wants us to know about him is revealed in the cross of Christ. His glory is on display, and that's what Jesus prayed for. Okay, God, time to show off. Okay, Father, it's time. Reveal more of you to these people. There's a second truth that Jesus wants the church to be sure of. And again, this breaks down real easy. Truth for every verse. So verse 2. Here's the truth. Jesus' authority makes salvation certain. Jesus' authority makes salvation certain. Verse 2. Since you have given him authority, that's Jesus, over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus' death doesn't make salvation possible. It makes it certain. And there's a big difference. I want you to notice just a, just a kind of a verb tense there that you have given him, have given him. It has the tense of indicating completed action. Whatever God is doing through Jesus at that moment is a completed action as far as God's concerned for his people. Not a possibility. A finish line. Do you understand? Not like, oh, I hope so. I hope you you access it. I hope you think enough or believe enough or try enough or pray enough or read enough. I hope so. This is a certain thing that he's done here. And and here, let me prove it to you. Because Jesus says, you have given me authority to do it. Jesus, God has given Jesus the mediating authority for all men, for all time, for all salvation for those men. We sing a song. We sing lots of songs. But one of them is an old hymn that speaks probably better than anything else. What can wash away my sin? Do you believe that? What can make me whole again? That's what this is saying. That's what this is. His authority makes it not possible, but absolutely certain that those of his people will be saved. So let me just break this down. I'm going to give you four words to remember how certain this is. The authority of Christ that the Father gave him Um, allows him to accomplish redemption through his sacrifice. He accomplishes it. So what is needed for salvation? Something has to happen to me. Something has to happen to my heart and to my sin and to my inability. I need a righteousness not of my own. I need a covering. Where does that come from? Don't be afraid. Jesus. God gave Jesus the authority to accomplish that event. Well, not only that, but God gave Jesus the authority to apply that redemption. The precision of that sacrifice atonement is given to his people by faith. Do you understand? So it's more specific than than just, just whatever. It's up to you. Not only that, but God has given Jesus the authority to sustain redemption for sinners. John 10, just a little bit before this uh, upper room discourse, this is what Jesus says, I give eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Who gives eternal life? Can anything be taken away if Jesus gives it to you? So we've got accomplished, we got applied, we got sustained, one more, complete. 
God gives Jesus the authority to complete salvation for sinners. You're never in jeopardy. You know, there are some churches and some denominations, some people who believe that it's up to you to sustain this relationship with God. In fact, you can lose your salvation. You could get disinterested in God. God could get disinterested in you. Some major sin, some big blowout, you could screw it up, and then suddenly this deal's off. If that were true, who has the authority? We do. Who, who has the authority in this text? Jesus does. So he completes the, the redemption for sinners. Luke chapter 1 um, says he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. The kingdom of redeemed sinners has no end. Nothing can snatch us from his hand. So let me just put it as bluntly as I can. To think that all Jesus did was to come to possibly make it, to make it a possibility is a huge insult. It's blasphemy to put the authority in a sinner's hands over the distance between holiness and righteousness. Like, I can work something. I can climb my way back there. I can be good enough or try enough or believe enough. Really? It's an unbridgeable chasm that God had to deal with. He has the authority over all sin. Amen? And so we look at this and go, Jesus was praying this. He had this in mind of what he was coming to do, not to make it possible, but to make it absolutely certain that sinners would be saved. Now, you should have said amen to that. Okay, there you go. Here's the third truth that Jesus wants the church to be sure of. Eternal life brings us close to God. Eternal life brings us close to God. Read verse three with me. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You know, uh, the predominant teaching on eternal life, and it is a truth, but the predominant teaching is living forever. Correct? Hence, eternal life. But Jesus says something here different about eternal life. He suggests eternal life is really about proximity to God, like closeness to God, about relationship to God. Listen, church, you've heard us say this a thousand times. The prize of heaven isn't living forever. The prize of heaven is God. When this is all said and done, that distance that was always there because of sin is totally, completely gone. We experience a relationship, an intimacy that Adam and Eve didn't even know because we're covered in righteousness. They didn't even have that. So Jesus goes through and he gives us like three specific things here about eternal life. And, and it's, worth, it's worth talking about. Jesus says eternal life is knowing the only true God. So it's important which God you believe in. You know, some people like to fashion God in their image. It's much easier. It's much more comfortable. If he looks more like me, if he has my demeanor, well, this is going to go really well because I'll kind of instinctively predict what he's going to do and how it, how it goes. Some people prefer a God that grades on a curve so it covers your failures. Some people like a God who's accepting of lifestyles and whatever it is out there. This God, that God, I'm worth, he's worth following. But Jesus somehow implies eternal life is only known through the one true God. There's a distinction about his certainty and specificness. Do you understand? There's one God. And guess what? He's holy He's just, he's wrathful against sin, he 
He's loving and he's merciful. That's who he is. Uh, I'm sympathetic as a sinner towards other sinners. I have a lot of mercy in me, I think, for people's struggles. But the most unmerciful thing for me to ever do is somehow make God palatable for you. If I say, oh, it's okay, it's okay, you can put him in your mind, you can, you can frame him, he's containable for you, but if I say, uh, he, he is, let me try, let me try to talk about holiness. Every single particular thought not in line with the will of God is evil and punishable by death forever in a place called hell. That's how holy he is. And if you think, well, that's just a God I don't want to serve. Well, there's a, there's a disconnect because you don't think sin is that big of a deal. But God does. And watch. It's not like that's the only statement he makes about himself. God says, and I understand, so I'm coming. I'm coming to give you a gift of life Freely received by faith, not by effort, not by works. You get it. Believe. So whatever you think is unsurmountable with the holiness and the picture and the justice of God, God provides the way. Right? Yeah, that's better. So Jesus says, here's eternal life. Knowing the one true God. Here's the other thing he says about eternal life. It's knowing Jesus Christ. It's the only place in all of scripture where Jesus uses both of these titles for himself. Jesus being the, the, the word that means God saves and, and Christ being the anointed one. But it's exactly what Peter says in, 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 Peter, in Acts chapter 4 verse 12. There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Jesus is saying this is eternal life. Exclusively me. It's, it's what he said in the, in the upper room discourse. I'm the way, and I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Eternal life is the prize of heaven is God, and God is this kind of God, and he's not your kind of God, and he comes in the person of Christ, and there is no other access point. Do you understand? And then there's this third thing he says about eternal life, that you have to believe that he has been sent by God. In other words, he's not a great teacher, although he is. He's not a moral example, although he is. He doesn't give us that option. He claims to be God, sent from God, come from heaven, this Jesus. So he's either the greatest, most evil liar ever to exist on the planet, or he's out of his mind nuts, or he is who he said he is. I'm God, and you've got to believe that God sent me. You get it? I mean, that just narrows your, your options on Christ. So he is praying right before he goes to the cross about the eternal will of God and him and the spirit. He's saying, listen, this is what we plan to do. And this is eternal life that they get you and they get me and they know I came from you. That's, that's the picture of it. There's a, there's a fourth truth that Jesus wanted the church to be um, certain of. And that is this, humiliation glorifies God. Humiliation glorifies God. Read verse four with me. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Let me ask you a question. What's the work that Jesus accomplished that God gave him to do? No trick. Cross. Let's put it another way. God coming as a baby Got a place to live, 
God growing up as a carpenter's son in a small little town. God living, kind of homeless, which a bunch of ragtag people. This God, this God who made everything and holds it all together by the power of his word. I was talking to Neil beforehand, trying to figure out a way to communicate this, and I can't. But, but one of the guys I was reading tried to, draw, tried to draw a scope around the enormity of God and his kingdom. And he used a, a, a number. This is going to be stupid, but I'm going to try it. Um, they, the best they can estimate is the universe that they can see is some 50 octillion light years big. See, I, I, I sound stupid even saying that. Um, but if you know a light year, uh, or if you, know, if you know how fast light travels, 186,000 miles an hour, and you go around the earth, you know, seven and a half times every second, and if you calculate a year of that activity, you get six trillion miles, right? Now, I'm done. I'm out of zeros. That's, that's 12 zeros to a trillion, 27 to octillion. Whatever they think it is, it's bigger. This God, who just went, and he holds it in his hand. This God came as a baby. He came to die. He came to suffer and be spit on and accused and judged falsely and hang on a cross and have nails pierce his hands and his feet. He, he decided uh, the, the king of glory, this God who holds that, little, that universe in his hand, it doesn't, even, it doesn't even amount to a speck of dust for him. He had such an intention for us. And he did it through humiliation. And somehow God is most glorified in that brokenness. God is so blessed in that. Let me, let me just read you Isaiah 53 based on uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. So you don't have it probably and it doesn't matter because I want your attention. I want you to absorb this. This is the word of God about this humiliation. Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There's nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He's looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures, but it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He took the punishment, and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We're all, we've all done our own thing, gone our own way, and God has piled all our sins, everything we've done on him. He was beaten. He was tortured. But he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered and like a sheep bearing, being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried and he was let off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought of his own welfare, beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man, even though he'd never hurt a soul or said one word that wasn't true. Still, it's what God had in mind all along. Now listen, 
to crush him with pain. The pain was that he gave himself as an offering for sin so that he'd see life come from it. Life, life and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, he'll see that it's worth it and be glad he did it. That what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones. As he himself carries the burden of our sins, therefore I'll reward him extravagantly. The best of everything, the highest honors because he looked death in the face and he didn't flinch. Because he embraced the company of the lowest, he took on his shoulders the sin of the many. He took up the cause of all the black sheep. Somehow, God taking on humiliation brings the Father glory that it can't any other way. And just a side note, if we're going to stop here for a second, we just got done with 1 Peter, an unbelievable letter, predominantly about suffering well for Christ and righteousness sake, right? And, and sometimes we get confused. Yeah, suffering is predominantly about, about having it transform us. Does it transform us? Yes. But there's something way more powerful, way more kingdom-sized about suffering than, than just being transformed in the image of Christ. It is that in our suffering, for our identification with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, somehow in that, God is glorified when our reputation suffers for following Christ. When, when, when we're accused, falsely accused, when we lose success or friendships because we love Jesus and he's better, God goes, that's awesome. And so here we have the example in, in, in verse 4 of Christ. I did it. I glorified you. Having accomplished the work that you sent me to do, to take on humanity. To be pathetic, and I'm the king of glory. I did it. The creator of the universe. And I can't even comprehend numbers, let alone God. God in my little puny mind. That king, rejected and stripped naked, falsely accused and brutally killed by his creation, the very ones he came to redeem. That humiliation. The ultimate humiliation. And what does verse 10 say in, in Isaiah 53? And God was pleased to crush him. Wow. Wow, that just blows my mind. One last truth in verse 5 that Jesus wants the church to be sure of. Jesus finishes where he started, exalted. Jesus finishes where he started, exalted. Look at verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Um, Jesus is not dead, folks. He is not defeated by Satan's sin or death. Um, he is sitting on his throne, ruling his kingdom. He is empowering us, speaking a better word for us. He's defending us. He is the exalted king of glory. And somebody should have said amen there. I'm just trying to help you, coach you through this stuff because that's where it goes, right there. Whenever you talk about him. So he's praying here for the restoration of the glory he had before he was humiliated. And he is right now. And yet there's something different. This Jesus, God-man, in human flesh, is now glorified in his human flesh. And there's a reason for that. His flesh, scars in his hands, scars in his side and his feet, 
is an eternal trophy, an eternal statement saying forever and ever and ever, I redeemed my people. His body does that. His, his glorified body says out loud, I did it. It's finished. No more sacrifices needed. Forever and ever and ever. A testimony. So just think about it, church. The pinnacle of all of God's work isn't creation. It's redemption. Did you know that? I mean, God's busy. He's powerful. He does all things, can do all things. But his number one work is saving you. You believe that? No, do you believe that? You got to believe that. If you don't believe that, I'm just kind of, yeah, I guess so. You don't get it. You see the display of God's wonder, his glory, his majesty, his love, his person, his character is only seen by redeeming messed up people like us. And he's done it. Fully exalted as creator, redeemer. And so Jesus prayed out loud in front of his apostles um, these words. And so they're prayed for us. The church should be sure that the cross puts God's glory on display, that Jesus' authority makes salvation certain, that eternal life brings us close to God, that, that humiliation glorifies God, and that Jesus finished where he started in, in exalted glory. So there's a therefore. Let me just give you a couple before we leave today. Um, pursue God's glory in your life. If Jesus is spending probably the most important particular moment before the cross to speak and remind the church of these forever truths and he's passionate about his glory, then we should be passionate about his glory, right? How do you do that? You obey. Nobody likes to talk about obedience. Obedience isn't how to clean, clean yourself up and make yourself acceptable to God. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the freedom that Jesus died to give you. Live in it. Listen, he died to give you an abundant life. Isn't that what the text says? To set you free from the slavery, the tyranny of having your, your flesh and your broken spirit dictate the terms because he's given you a new heart, right? He freed you. All I'm saying is live out what he died to give you. Just live it out. So there might be some things in our lives um, that our version of, yeah, I, I like Jesus. Like you said, amen. You kind of gave a heart, you know, a head nod to it. You love Jesus. But there's this other part. It's called the plus Jesus. It's Jesus plus whatever. And all I'm suggesting to you is that you, in your, in your sanity, say, God, reveal what that is. And then pry my little white fingers open on whatever is Jesus plus. And let it just be you. It could be some addiction. It could be some bitterness or anger or an affair or whatever. Let those fingers be pried open. Let God rearrange it so that his glory is preeminent, just like Jesus prayed. Amen? One other thing. Get to know Jesus. Seems to make sense, um, but seek him. Um, in Jeremiah, the prophet, God says this, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Just to, here's just a rule. God doesn't play hide and seek with his people. He's not making this hard. He's immediately accessible and there. It's us. 
because we seek him with half hearts, right? And you wonder why it's so quiet. We give marginal things, or we have that list, we have those lists of things that are as important. And, and all I'm saying is he says, if you seek him with everything, you'll get him. And if he's already the prize of heaven waiting for us, let's get him early, right? Let's have him now. Um, Paul said this his way like this, and I'll finish with this. In Philippians 3, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain, gain Christ. In other words, let me paraphrase. Give up everything because he's worth it. That's what Paul says. I consider everything just garbage compared to having Christ. So if Jesus prays for the church, in front of the church, for his glory, and that's the preeminent prize of heaven, and we're supposed to go after that, seek him and find him, right? And get to know this God of glory. Get to know him. Hang out with him. Let him be your satisfaction and your, and your joy. And I guarantee you crazy stuff will happen. Good crazy stuff, that is. <laughs> well, we got a lot to pray for, so let's do that right now. I thank you, God, for um, your wonder and your greatness and your holiness and your standards. I thank you for your mercy and your love. I thank you for uh, revealing yourself in the person of Jesus, our Savior. I thank you, God, that uh, we understand that this horrific tool, the cross, says more about you than anything else. God, I pray for us that um, we as your people would pursue your glory. God, bring conviction and then bring power to help us. And uh, God, we do want to say like Paul, that we consider everything rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.